Another case of lax financial controls for a local school board, more romanticizing the public education system, and New York charter schools gain students again, today on The Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome, friends. This is another episode of The Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and the stories that aren't being covered with our friends and others in journalism world. Today, we're looking to shed some light on the dark forces that affect our schools, but also some things that make us hopeful and some things that make us think. And when I say we, of course, I'm talking about my co-host, Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer, a superintendent of a network of charter schools, a guy who starts all kinds of healthy business opportunities, like one I just got, which is the, <laughs> the, the fitness opportunity. He he he. Not only he's not just content with being shredded himself, beautiful and brown and shredded himself. Oh, go on. He wants the whole go world on. to be like that. But he sent it to me of all people at my age and my my health condition. Come on, please. I almost deleted you from the group. What you're referring to for our audience is I have a fitness policy that I've been doing for a few years now. It involves a lot of education people, political people, business people, and basically it's my way to proselytize a certain healthy way of life and a, and a life of longevity. So I'm expecting you to sign up. I respect you for this, number one. I feel so at like, you know, offline, we can talk about this. Health is something at my age is top of concern because it's right at the twilight of whether or not you're going to die healthy or not. Like it's, you have to make a final decision. Are you going to live out the rest of your days with all your angst and pains and groans, or are you going to go the healthy route? You and I had dinner in in Colorado Springs years ago when I was starting Boulder. the keto thing. Was it Boulder? Uh, yeah, Boulder. And it's funny. I remember stuff. So the dinner that we had, like you dropped like little things in that conversation. I didn't even know this was part of your world. I didn't know the fitness, the yeah. health thing was. But I was just going on my keto journey, and you knew so much about it. I was like, oh, a kindred soul. He's much younger than my, much younger than me, and in better shape. I'm going to stop talking to him about it. <laughs> well, well, I'm expecting you to flash those abs. I'm, we're heading to Miami. I, yeah. I'm going tomorrow. When are you heading down there? I'm, I'm, I'm heading down there tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow morning. So I'll see you. I'll be going from Minnesota. Well, it'll be very cold to 82 degrees. I'll see you at the pool. We keep talking about we're going to go to Miami together. I want people to know who are listening to this that we're not going just for fun. We're not like some uber wealthy people that are going to be sitting, drinking. Romantic getaway. Yeah, drinking Mai Tais on the beaches of Miami. We're literally going for work. It's my last trip of the year. So I just want you guys to know that. And hopefully we'll, we'll get a chance to catch up in person and create much fodder for this podcast. And you know, speaking of fodder, where are we going to start? We, we just, our audience knows this, but we usually do one thing we're mad about, one thing that makes us think, and one, one thing that makes us hopeful. Where do you want to start? So let's start with the mad because that's where I'm geared to go. As, as always. So we'll start with that and we'll work our way through. What makes me mad is not being able to trust our system of public education to faithfully administrate the dollars that we give them. And we have yet another example of the lax controls, financial controls of traditional public schools that are run by democratically elected school boards. So there should be all the controls in the world. This comes in the case of a school board president, former school board president, Albert Morrison, in the Madison District Public Schools, which is a Michigan school district, who has been indicted by the DOJ for more than a half million dollars in bribes that he took when he shepherded through the school board payments for a friend of his who owns a business, and that friend would write him payback, like uh, kickbacks uh, for contracts. And the friend's name is president. He was the president of a company named John 
David, who got more than $3 million in maintenance and construction projects from the district. And of that, he would write checks to another company that was owned by the president of the school board. And that president of the school board would take that money down. That that amounted to, like I said, more than uh, half a million dollars. Could seem like small potatoes. Like, you know, hey, why are we, you know, haggling over one school district in Michigan that took some bribes? But it, you know, as a former school board member myself, I can tell you the number of contracts that come across my very first night as a school board member, the staff gave me a binder full of pages that was super thick. And what that was, was the budget for the year on our first <laughs> night. We hadn't read it at all and we were passing it. And I oh thought, well, wait a second now, something feels a little out of order here. I haven't read the thing. How am I supposed to pass it? Oh, don't worry about it. It's just all in there. And if, there, if you have any questions later, we can go through. The sheer number of contracts that local school districts sign and pay out, it makes them the largest employer in a lot of places, the largest uh, kind of business opportunity in a lot of places. So that's why it matters when we see something like this come up where the DOJ comes in. Americans should be able to trust their democratic institutions, and there is really lax oversight of school school boards. What I would ask you, Ravi, about this, and number one, I want to keep making this point, number one, because whenever we talk about competing types of schools, they are the ones that always get put on the hook for, oh, they're so lax in their oversight. You're talking about charters. Charter schools and anything outside of the system. Anything, right. not just charters, but private schools, charter schools, anything outside of the system. And it allows the districts to live with this, with the public having a false sense of just how clean they are and how democratic right. and strong they are. But here's one thing that I have for you, not to get into that com com competition debate so much, but just to think through, does it really make sense to have 14,000 school districts that get the majority of their money from the federal government and the state governments, but they have all this local kind of autonomy to just duplicate contracts all over the place? Why should a state's yeah. school districts all be buying paper, for instance, from different paper providers. It's true of police departments, too. I, I have a friend who's been advocating for consolidation of police departments. This is one of the issues with the Uvalde issue. Like, there are many issues with that school shooting. But one of the issues that these police departments face is, like, sometimes it's, like, these super tiny forces that have terrible training and don't coordinate with the, the county next door, et cetera. And things could be much better if these things started to consolidate. So I think often... You know, and obviously the consolidation has its costs because the the bigger you are, sometimes the less nimble you are. Mm -hmm. So we have mm -hmm. all sorts of issues with huge bureaucracy. And, you know, there's there's all sorts of legal corruption that happens within these districts. Like what you're talking about is is illegal corruption. But a lot of times there's just bureaucracy that's added, like more headcount for the central office versus the, the you know, putting it out to the schools. I know that. I think it's L.A. where the, the superintendent there has, you know, in response to some of the stress within that system has been pushing district staff out to uh, go out to the schools, which I think is really a good thing. I know Eric Adams, like when you talk about police, like one of the things he did in New York was try to push people from their desk jobs in the police department out to patrolling uh, in New York City. So I think this is faced in all areas of government. And I think it's a great example. Like the hypocrisy is for real. Like we were talking about Stockton last last week. I have plenty of friends who have been to jail. Some of them that you you and I know who are in jail right now for stealing money from charters. Those people often get highly publicized from the Randy Weingartens of the world and the sort of anti-charter world. But you're, you know, folks are noticeably silent when these types of things happen in traditional districts all the time. I think they're all bad. Like all that is bad. 
Just don't steal from kids, period. Well, I just want to say for the record, I have no friends that are in jail for <laughs> Oh, you and I you and I are friends with Seth. No, Seth Andrew, Democracy Press. I Prep? just no. want to clarify for the record. Oh, okay. I have no right. friends that are in jail for stealing from kids. Well, okay, maybe they're not your friends anymore. But I don't know. We, you, you and I. Well, I think you you live long enough. We know enough. people. We yeah, know we know people. people. I'll put it that way. I we know have, a guy. Uh, have, yeah, I have at least one friend who got me into the work. Multiple people who got me into work. Now I'm thinking about. There's another guy who. This, we're, we're talking about like the promise of dishing it out. There's one guy named Chris Clements to tell a story who uh, was assigned to coach me in this work of starting charter schools uh, by one of the foundations that that funded my first school. And he was starting a charter school in Atlanta and I was starting a school in Nashville. And he would come down and coach me on starting school. At a certain point, I called up the foundation. I'm like, this guy doesn't know what the F he's talking about. He's totally useless. And then they stopped sending him. Years later, it turns out he was taking money from his school, taking it to strip clubs. He got yeah. <laughs> many years in prison for that. Yeah, he was just like spending the school money and strip clubs. And that was a charter school leader. So I, I want to be balanced here. That shit happens. But that yeah. stuff usually gets way more attention than the run-of-the-mill district school doing it, which, you know, all of this is bad. We need strong oversight of our public dollars. Well, and I think that's a good point for this story. It's not to let charters off the hook in any way, shape, or form. It is to say that when we talk about these type of corrupt uh, stories or actors, bad actors, it is easy to make this case when you have a guy who runs a charter school who's buying an airplane, like a private jet, yeah, right. Like that's a that's a story that is like sexier than Angie Dickerson, you know. Like I love that story. That's, that's what happened down in Texas, right? Yeah, that happened in Texas. You yeah. know, and there's these different things. So, and and we should have no love like when we have bad actors that are in any type of school. But the the idea that the majority of our kids are in the larger districts, and those districts have all kinds of oversight problems themselves, cost overruns, double dealing, contracts that are done like with kind of school board members that are out to lunch, don't really understand who's getting the money and all that. Yeah. If you were really honest and serious about this, I'll give you another example. So if you go to Pinole, California, Pinole is near, it's Contra Costa County. I think it's, you know. You love California, by the way. You yeah, love yeah. it. There's no episode. There's no episode we'll do without you mentioning California. Just move there. It's my birthplace. It's like where I was move born. There. Yeah. It's move like there. I was born. Like I am a, from the People's Republic of California. Anyways, so there's, there's a district there, a high school called uh, Pinole Valley High School. It's near Hercules. I think it's San Pablo County. It's, you know, closest places are like Richmond. I don't know what people would know of the area. But they were supposed to rebuild a high school for 1,600 kids. It turns out I attended that high school for one year. And so did, by the way, uh, who's the band that make American Idiot? Uh, Green Day. Green Day. There's, if you look it up on, on uh, YouTube, you'll find a video of them actually playing before they were famous at oh my God. High School. That's crazy. But anyways, the high school's for 1,600 kids. They were going to rebuild it. They didn't really need to rebuild it, but they were going to so that they could be competitive as a bedroom community. I think the cost was going to be about $50 million. It ended up being $250 million. So now you ask yourself, hey, how do you go from $50 million to $250 million? You do that through cost overruns over like seven years with multiple contractors being involved and there being multiple investigations into who was getting what money. If you go to the school now, it's got like artwork and blown glass and all mm. kinds of like just fabulous. <laughs> like it started out as just a high school replacement. It ended up on being everybody's paycheck. And there's a mm. school board that's democratically elected. 
to make sure that that sort of thing doesn't happen. There's a county board that's democratically elected to make sure that sort of thing doesn't happen. But it happens. And I want people to stop weaponizing this just against one kind of school. I want people to understand, lose your illusions. This matters. This all matters. Because the schools that you should be able to trust to be governed by people you should trust are not always worthy of your 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 trust. I'm just going to put well, it that way. Uh, one pop culture recommendation as we close this out is a uh, Bad Education, a 2019 HBO show, like docu series, I guess, or something. That's with Hugh Jackman, Allison Janney. It's all about a Long Island school district. That's a true story, where it's all about a principal and an admin person who basically were funneling money from the school district for years mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. in very similar ways that this is being described. It's a really incredible show. It's called Bad Education. Pop culture in the house. Well, let's shift gears. So that's the mad. There's not, you know, like much more that we can say about it. People, as good citizens, if you want to be a good member of the Citizen Stewart Show and the Citizen Stewart family, you have to be a good citizen. And good citizens pay attention to their government. And in our next segment, now, the think piece of the week that has us thinking a little bit about like, wow, I call myself Citizen Stewart. This is a Citizen Stewart show. I like good citizens. I like it as a thing. So this piece actually is a little bit about good citizenship or what education can do to produce it. The piece is by Robert Pondicio, a senior fellow at the conservative Thomas B. Fordham Institute. He makes the case that public education is drifting from its founding ideals and its public purpose. He makes this diagnosis of the problem. I'll start with an attempt to diagnose the problem, and I'll state it bluntly. Public education is drifting from its founding ideals and becoming increasingly estranged from its stakeholders and its public purpose. Our schools are supposed to be in the business of attaching our children to the country. Oh, really? Is that what they're supposed to do? Uh, Their community and civil society, but it sometimes seems that they're more interested in attacking them. There is a crisis in public education. We don't need to keep beating up on it, but it really comes down to this clear idea that we are making kids hate their hate their country, hate their their government. There is nothing wrong, he says, with thinking that a non-negotiable for public education must be to cultivate in our children a respect and even a reverence for the beliefs, the practices, the institutions, and yes, the virtues that made America the envy of the world. There's no propaganda in that. Das Kapital! Um, anyway, so, what, I mean, like, listen, what, you know where I'm going to go with this, right? This is yep. what, I'll put it in context a little bit, why it matters. Conservatives want to sell the public on the ideal that our nation should look a certain way and sound a certain way, and we should have one story about what that nation is. Uh, schools should be a vehicle for transmitting their view to the American people. And in my mind, it's a form of social control. It's a single story that they want told in a pluralist nation that will never, ever work. But this is why it matters, because we're still having old guys write things that the younger generations are not going to take too kindly to, just because they're a younger generation that are becoming more fluid, more diverse, and able to see the world in more than one way. What did you get? What did you get out of this when you read it? I want to see if we're on the same side of this. I, I haven't even said what side I'm on yet, but I just I want to. Hear oh, I wonder what, what side you're on. <laughs> uh, what, uh, I'll say at the outset that we invited uh, this author uh, Rob to to join us, and he declined just to to make sure that people don't think that we're like talking out of school and characterizing his views. And he always has an open invitation to come on here and express his views. And I hope we can continue that conversation. 
I think I had a debate about this a couple months ago with my friend Liz Wolf from Reason and my friend Stephen Kent from Rightly. And I was basically outnumbered. It was me versus two people. And we also at Lost Debate have done a segment on the um, 1619 project and then the 1776 project, which is kind of like the Trump uh, Mm -hmm, right leaning mm -hmm. version of that. And what what this particular piece, so I, I read this piece, at, which is kind of short, and then there's he references another piece, one of which I, I, I read this morning called The Pedagogy of the Depressed, which was in Commentary Magazine, which is a mm-hmm. way longer elucidation of these views. And so I'm going to try to couple these two together and try to get at what he's saying, which is he, he diagnoses a, what he views as a few issues with the way that we're teaching now, or at least things that are happening in school right now. And he talks about COVID shutdowns that went on longer than necessary, remote learning that pried open the black box of the American classroom, fights over masking children, critical race theory, gender ideology, and social and emotional learning. And I, we don't have enough time to go through each one of those, mm-hmm. but I think where he mm-hmm. spends most of his time, because I have way different views, and you and I have debated some of those issues, like the nuances of some of those. What I think, what he spends most of his time in this one piece, the first piece about, is the sense that... He he quotes Benjamin Rush saying that, quote, our strongest prejudices in favor of our country are formed in the first one and 20 years of our lives, meaning like from one to 20, you're forming your views of your life. And he's he's basically, I think, pro a certain kind of patriotism being taught and love of country within our schools. And he views that as central to our civic glue of our country. Uh, And so he, he believes that that is foundational. I'm kind of with him to an extent within reason, right? I want people to love their country. I want people to feel a sense of pride in their community. But he he then lays out this argument where he says, "This is I'm quoting him, he says, I don't think it's untoward or reactionary for parents and stakeholders to say at some point, hold on, what is the permission structure that allows you to do this, to impose political or ideological views on my child, <laughs> to make decisions unilaterally about what children in our country should know? Uh-huh. And- and what I want to know is there, there seems to be a contradiction is, is my point. Like mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. think that the purpose of a school system is to, and he quotes it up there, he makes it very clear that he thinks that it should build a prejudice in favor of country. That is an ide- ideology. Now it might be one that I might be sort of with him in certain ways, depending on how it's, it, it's, it's implemented. Like I don't want kids being taught false things. And I think like teaching about the legacy of slavery and, and the fact that Thomas and Je- Thomas Jefferson not only had slaves, but we all know that story. Like it wasn't just that he had slaves, which is evil enough, but what he did with his slaves and his own children is pretty horrible and something I think kids should know about. Right. But at the same groomer. time, the founding idea, let's put it, let's right. put it in today's yeah. ter- terminology. He was a groomer. He literally groomed the, children for yeah, sex. And, and what we, and what we, I don't, I want to know more about what that means, but we don't have time for that. But, uh, but, but I think like, but I've had this debate with others before, which is like, I think kids can handle knowing that and, and understand that there are contradictions at the heart of the founding of our country, but also think that, Hey, like at the time, the founding ideals were revolutionary in a certain way. And then I'm a, and I'm Obama-esque liberal in the sense that I want, I believe that we are getting better with time as a country but that we shouldn't sugarcoat some of the the dark truths about our country. And there isn't one truth about that. I, that's my opinion, right? And I don't think I should force a school to adhere to one particular view of what our country is. And I'm not sure he does either, but I do think that there's like a contradiction. And now when you go to this other piece, where I, I've been, you know, I'm kind of going on here, so I'll stop. There's, 
When you go to his other piece, he starts to provide more detail about what he really thinks is a correct and incorrect ideology within schools. And that's where I think he starts to really have some problems. But I'll wait uh-huh, before we get well, there. What problems? I mean, like like lift up like one that you would give an ex- as an example. Yeah, I'll say that like on the critical race theory debate, you and I have talked about this a little bit. When I was in schools, there was some bullshit that people were trying to get me to teach, uh, whether it's TFA or others that I thought was postmodern gobbledygook that had no business being in front of kids. There's also commingled with this sense of like anti-achievement orientation and watering down of standards, usually pushed by white liberals over their guilt complex that had nothing to do with the, what's best in the best interest of kids. I think Rob and I would be in agreement on that. But when I read his piece, especially this one, commentary, which is the pedagogy of the depressed, which has more, way more words than this other one. There's like no attempt at steel manning his point of view, where Mm -hmm. in my opinion, meaning like, you know, straw manning is like presenting like the most simplistic view of your opponents. I think he does no attempt to say, all right, well, why, like, what is it that is animating people to do some of the things they're doing? Like he talks about almost this epidemic of CRT-esque type things in their schools or hate of country or ideology that's pervasive. And he doesn't really cite a whole lot. So he says, for instance, he says, forget adult competence. Children are told sometimes early in school and in the broader culture that the world is counting on them for deliverance from problems grownups heedlessly created and have proven incapable of solving. I'm not, and I'm not jumping ahead. This is the same paragraph. He says, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this is the next sentence. So what's the evidence for this, Mm -hmm. this broad, like, kids being told that grownups created problems that they need to solve in schools. What's the evidence? The next sentence. In 2019, Time Magazine named 16-year-old climate activist Greta Thunberg the youngest person of the year in its history. A group of Parkland, Florida high school gun control activists topped the magazine's list of the world's most influential people. The article praising their efforts was written by Barack Obama. So I'm like, okay, there's this epidemic of us telling kids the world is falling apart and adults do it. What's the evidence? Time Magazine giving Greta Thunberg a climate activist an award or mm-hmm. Parkland kids whose fucking school was shot up caring about gun control. None of those are the school proselytizing about it. It's a magazine awarding a child activist mm-hmm. on climate change something or a group of kids taking matters in their own hand and being, you know, under endured a very direct trauma to them in their school being recognized by people as, you know, leaders. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, and and I can. There's just a ton of this stuff in the piece where it's like, where's the evidence that there's this epidemic? I'm almost primed for it. Tell me, where is this bleak, like, doomsaying happening in schools? And he just provides these weird anecdotes that are often outside of the school themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a problem that Robert has had for a long time. And you know, for full disclosure, I know Robert were people that used to see eye to eye on some things and don't see eye to eye on things anymore. You know, he's one of the people that I think threw kind of like a toxic Molotov cocktail into school reform maybe about seven years ago. He wrote this big piece. He went to a a school reform function. There were some people there that were social justice people, including Brittany Packnett from TFA at the time who would go on to do kind of a lot of, a lot of Ferguson activism and just a couple other people. And it was the first time in that what had been a very white, very white male reform event every year, full of money people and whiz kids who were selling kind of like the next ed techie thing. That one year they had, they included some other folks because social justice was becoming something that folks didn't feel like they could ignore if they were going to keep doing education advocacy. 
he took great umbrage with that and found every white guy in the crowd that actually was there because Robert wasn't there. And he interviewed them all and wrote a big piece about how public education or how education advocacy was becoming too woke. And all these yeah. other issues were going to break apart the bipartisan thing. And he had weird examples then, too. And my kind of thinking back then is, I don't know why it has to be an either or. Either right. you're for social justice or you're not. Why can't it just be a big tent education movement where you see things very differently? But the here's the problem with the heterodox hustle. The heterodox hustle is a new group of conservative people who say that they're all for viewpoint diversity and kids are just, they can't have different speakers on their campuses because they're such kind of snowflakes and they're, you know, we're coddling the American mind and blah, 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 all that stuff, right? The problem is they're the most fragile group of people on planet Earth who can't accept that there are different ways to tell the story about the United States, different stories that we can tell in a pluralist nation of people's the one country in the world where people come from everywhere around the world, the idea that we would have one story or one way of telling it, rather than figuring out a way to mediate difference as our number one invention, the biggest invention in the United States should be how to mediate difference, not how mm -hmm. to get the majority population to homogenize themselves into one story and way, especially when that one story is the only one that suits old white guys who grew up on Leave it to Beaver, who were propagandized within an inch of their life their entire life and told that they were the default people of the universe. And they're full of all this petty kind of poetry around the founding fathers and the virtues that make us the envy of the world. Listen, you've traveled the world. You've been some other places. There's lots of envies of the world, right? You're about to go to Costa Rica. You like it there for some reason. There's some things you like about it there too. There might be some other places on planet Earth where there's some things. I want our people to have a world fund of information. I don't want them to be propagandized with one version. The founding fathers is such a silly thing. They're not my father's. They didn't found everything. <laughs> that might be your people. Like, listen, I will allow you your heroes. I will allow you your precious, your precious little story that you tell yourselves about how we're exceptional, we're the best people in the world, that we've done no wrong. The civil rights movement was a communist plot to disrupt how great we actually were. All this social justice and woke stuff is, is not people trying to fully live their fully humanized life in a country that has denied them their rights. It's not that. It's just that they want to destroy the fabric of our beautiful story that we should be teaching in our schools. I will allow you all of that. I will allow you to send your kids to schools that make them as stupid as you want them to be. I want my kids to have a world fund of information that includes the world like the actual yep. world fund of information where Chinese people and Asians and, and Japanese people and others have all contributed something that make our cars run, our trains run, our lives work. That's my only problem is like, it's, you know, like, listen, it's fine for you to believe what you believe. Don't try and do it through our systems. Well, I, I think it, it, people might be listening to this saying like, well, what is this? Why, why do we care about this? I, I care about this because you and I and Rob, we're all part of this. I don't know him personally, but we were all kind of in the same circles back in the day of what we would call education reform. All sorts of issues with calling that a movement or how cohesive we were or whatever. But we believed some of the same things for sure and, and mm -hmm. worked together on some stuff in theory. Like, obviously, I didn't directly work with him on stuff, but like, we're kind of part of the same stuff. And this is a fissure. This is why I'm fascinated by it. A very important one that has existed. And you and I have this podcast in part because you and I are a little bit different on this stuff. And we are part of the heterodox. The real heterodoxy. 
I'm not part. Of, I'm not part of the heterodox hustle. I'm part of the real heterodoxy. No one is going to out heterodox me. Name a person in this field who's going to out heterodox me. Not a single person. <laughs> well, this is the thing. Is like you know, if if somebody comes to me and says, "Hey, you're rigid," I can only say what I know from my experience to discussing these issues every day. I've never. You've never been sensitive to to it push back and I would hope vice versa. Now, I do like Jonathan Haidt. You, you mentioned The Coddle of the American Mind. I like his book. I don't know him personally, but I think it's a great book. But there's another area here where the, the he kind of shows himself to have a little bit of a bias. And once again, I, I want him to come on to defend himself <laughs> on this. But there is, and I'll, I would debate him in any forum. This is an open, like if he wants me to debate him on whatever forum he wants, I'll do that or discuss this with him. He talks about as evidence, again, I'm going to go through some of this evidence and this may seem tedious, but I think it's really important because this has to do with, I think, where he and certain people have a certain sense of when they say that there's this leftist ideology run amok in our schools, this is the evidence they're providing. He talks about a viral video that captured Dianne Feinstein and a group of students. So the, you know, Senator Dianne Feinstein and a group of students. And the students were insisting, quote, our earth is literally dying and asking Feinstein to support the Green New Deal. And the students said, some scientists have said that we have 12 years to turn this around, as students said. Uh, and then Feinstein wrote back, it's not going to be turned around in 10 years. And they kind of had a back and forth. This is what Rob Pondisio had to say about this. He said, the awkward exchange is not action civics, that's in quote, it's theater. The students learn their lines by rote with no real understanding of government or politics, and Feinstein refused to play her assigned role as the indulgent elder, praising children for their engagement and pretending to be moved by their activism. Now, how did this get past an editor? First of all, he just says it's theater. <laughs> how do you know these kids aren't animated by a sincere a sense of alarm over climate? Right? How do you know their lines were learned by rote and no real understanding of government or politics? And how do you know that Feinstein was pretending to be moved by their activism? There's literally no evidence. This is all. These are all lines that speak to the state of mind of the people being described. Did he ask these people what was mm -hmm. in their mind? And I would say, look, I may be with Rob on certain stuff around how, like, we were centralizing race in certain ways, or you know, pushing, uh, you know lowering of standards within our schools or drifting from like focusing on basic academics, whatever. But I do believe climate change is a real thing. And I think teaching that in schools is not crazy. In 2021, there was a study in the Environmental Research Letters a publication where a bunch of scientists and thinkers looked at 88,125 climate-related peer-reviewed papers published since 2012. And they concluded that 99.9% of them had a consensus on human-caused contemporary climate change. And when the UN IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Planet on climate Panel on Climate Change, kind of brings scientists together to say, well, what does that climate change mean? At minimum, they say that we're dealing with, in the next two decades, 1.5 degrees Celsius increase in global warming, and it could be much higher than that. And if you want to think about what that means, that is a catastrophe at minimum 1.5. So when the kids say 12 years to turn this around, they, they might be too conservative. Like this shit is real. So when Rob is saying like, why well, don't that teaching that is some kind of like woke ideology. I'm like, I just beg to differ. I think 99.9% .9 of scientists believing something that it could be in all likelihood catastrophic for a country is something that should be taught in schools and call me a radical. I just think that's essential. I mean, you're arguing with people though that grew up not knowing the difference between propaganda and education. You're talking, you're arguing with the people who have aged into a place where the younger people are actually 
uh, factual in ways that the former generations weren't. They don't believe the stories that are just handing to them. What you just said was a science basis for understanding the change of the earth, what's happening in the earth, the changes right. of it or whatnot. There would have been a time where, where everything you just said would have been if it conflicted with the party line of the United States, the government, what the government said, the official story, you would have been called a communist for saying even what you just said. Today, you'll still be called a communist for saying that you believe some of these wacko leftist theories right. about, you know, anti-capitalism and, you know, whatever, these things that that you're that are literally empirically true. They're just there's no we don't have to debate them. But that's the problem with education now. With politicizing education, education should be about creating smarter citizens, I think, in some ways. I might agree with him on the idea that if we're getting our investment out of it, the money that we put into it, we should be getting really well-educated people who come out of schools ready to exercise their rights within a country that gives them a lot of rights, but they should do it in a responsible way. And we're not doing that right now. We have lots of very, like, we have people that graduate, never read a book again in their life. We have people who graduate don't understand uh, what's the difference between their senator and their house member. We have people that have been given one of the most kind of like the best rights ever is to have a say in their government, whether they're poor or not, whether they're rich or not, doesn't matter, right? So I agree to some extent that you should go through 12 years of education coming out the other end, capable of being a strong citizen. And like I have said on this show before, that we are like witnessing the Dunning-Kruger effect overtake all of our systems, all of our institutions. I just don't think that the conservatives like Pondicio, who write this type of dribble, know the extent to which they're contributing in making the public dumber. All of this fancy language around, we should be making our kids have reverence for their country and blah, 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 all of that stuff. That's not education. That's indoctrination, the thing that they say they're against. We should be indoctrinating our kids to stand and pledge their allegiance to a cloth. We should make them stand and sing songs together in unison in perfect harmony that make them feel some form of forced emotionalism. This is all emotive thinking for a political purpose. They want to create sheep, in my mind. Yeah, and I don't I can, think that's what education is for. We're like that. We should be the freest nation on earth. We should be the freest thinking country on earth. We should have some of the smartest people running and getting into offices, regardless of whether they're married or not. For instance, like we shouldn't like you. 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 You had this thing called the arena where you were preparing people to exercise their civic participation in a way that I think is fundamental. Run for office. Do something. Be part of the issue. You probably more than I could tell this public so many things that are cosmetic, that have nothing to do with the worth or the character of the leadership of the person that we care about when people run for office, right? Because we're not free thinking. I am of a believer that if you tell our history accurately, and I do know that there's a debate about what the accurate history is. and Is there though? Is there really? Well, I mean, like it's what historians <laughs> do, right? So I think like it's totally fine to have a debate about certain key moments in our history, for instance, mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. like the civil rights period was MLK, like what to, to, to what degree was he nonviolent? So when he says things like violence, violence is the tool of the oppressed, what does he mean by that? That's a good high school mm -hmm. debate, right? Mm -hmm, what did he mm -hmm, mean by that? Mm -hmm. And how do you square that with all the nonviolence that he preached, right? That's mm -hmm. a great little debate going on or not little, but important debate, right? Or like, is like MLK's ideology versus Malcolm X's, right? These are really important. And were they complementary? Were they at odds? And yada, yada, yada. These are all really important debates. Uh, I actually think that if you teach 
this is just my opinion, you teach our history accurately with all its contradictions, people will come away with a reverence for our country that will be stronger than if you just straight propagandize it. And I think he truly believes this too. I just get the sense, and I don't know what's in his heart. So in contrast to him, when he writes, he seems to know what's in Feinstein's mind. I don't know mm-hmm. what's in his mind. I could only see what his words on the page. He, he, he wants to put his hand on the scale and say, you know what, even if 99.9% of scientists believe climate change is real and is a threat to society, I don't want you teaching that because, I don't know, he doesn't fill in the blank. He doesn't say why he thinks that that's wrong, but that's the fact, right? So he seems to be advocating for hiding facts from children because it makes them depressed. I don't know. Like, it's, it's just a strange argument. The number one target in all of his pieces, the number one targets are civil rights workers, social justice warriors, what he calls social justice warriors, the concept of social justice, the idea that America is racist in any way, that our systems are unfair or unjust. He talks often about how he never wanted to teach kids anything about that stuff when he taught kids, right? Turns out he taught in a school where the black kids later created whole social media channels to talk about how uh, poorly they were treated in this kind of very paternalistic school that he was a teacher at, by the way. And all the black kids and brown kids had examples and stories of being treated like slaves in those schools, right? But there's a way to be so socially insulated, so sure of your white male kind of um, your white male kind of authority that. You don't have to take in additional information that challenges the standard line, the traditional line, your standard authority, your story that you've held forever. And listen, even me saying that makes it, well, you know, someone can listen to this and say they're Chris goes and he's, no, the guy (laughs) consistently in every piece is challenging anybody who does work that's challenging the system, challenging the government, challenging the stories that we're being told, challenging things like police justice, like, you know, uh, social justice. There are arguments to be had about whether or not, or to what extent police need to be reformed. But if you're not a person who's actually had the type of experiences that some communities have with their policing systems, but you're too kind of insulated to know, hey, maybe my situation is different than theirs, then you're not actually like the best commentator on that particular issue. So to kind of like push back on social media, people who are pushing change around police, you know, criminal justice or around um, race, around these things that people are literally experiencing, have a, having a bad experience with the systems that are supposed to serve them. I don't know why that would be your constant target unless you just didn't believe them and unless you just didn't care. Like, you, I don't care that some cop threw you on the ground last night, threw all your, your everything, all the contents of your pocket out of, you know, out of your pockets, kind of roughed you up a bit when not, and you were 14 on your way home. And now you have a story to tell your dad and your dad's pissed off and you're pissed off. I don't care. Like, that's the, that's the conservative kind of line that he's on. And I, I just don't think it's a good one. Yeah. I just want to say in summary on this, which is, I don't know anything about the man. You know him better than I do. And I, and I... I can only look at what he wrote in these two pieces and say from a logical perspective, not, not lived experience, not anything else, right? I don't even need to go there, right? Like, I don't know. I have no idea. All I could say is he is not doing the work in these pieces to persuade me, and I'm very persuadable on this kind of stuff, uh, to persuade me of this epidemic of woke indoctrination within schools and like 
you know, this causal link between depression of kids and the young adult novels that we're teaching them or the climate change activism that's helping school. That's my bottom line. He just hasn't done the work to persuade me. If he's listening or somebody who knows he's listening, tell him I'll debate him anywhere. I'm not going to go ad hominem against him. I have no sense of his character, even though he seems to have the sense of other people's character. All I'm saying is, uh, all I'm saying is, I don't know what's in your mind. I know what you put on paper. Let's go at it. Let's debate. That is a challenge to a duel. And you know, like, listen, it's not personal with me. I'll just say this much. Robert Pondicio is not important. The ideas that he is, he's pushing or whatnot as a guy who's not in control of anything, a guy who doesn't run a school, who doesn't have kids in the system right now, who doesn't have anything going on where he's anything other than a sideline commentator. That's not the important part of the story. The Thomas B. Fordham Institute that is transmitting and other uh, right-wing organizations like Heritage and others that are transmitting a specific story about how we should see America and how we should, how our systems should produce the type of citizens they want to produce. That's the important part of the story to me because there's money behind that and policy and political. Like, listen, I don't care what any of these folks have to say until it becomes policy that I have to live underneath. And we are not winning that particular battle, I think, of, of controlling what they're allowed to do. They can think all these things if they want to. It's the moment that we start banning books and that we start changing what kids can learn and we start changing everything else uh, about schools and shaping the way that we vote and all that, that's when they start to matter to me. So have at her. Listen, Robert Pondicio, you and I have known each other for a while. We have we have sparred, we have debated, we have agreed on many things. We have disagreed on many things. I am no one's gonna out heterodox me. I am willing to talk to anyone anytime, anywhere. And we did extend an invitation for this particular show, but I will show up anywhere to have this exact discussion because I believe that America should have as much debate as possible. So that being the the uh, the way that we roll with Lost Debate and with the Citizen Stewart Show, we will leave it there for now. Open invitation. Lots and of inside baseball for our audience. Stuff. That's what you get for us. Now you know all of the little wars, like the little ideological wars happening within our camp. We're delivering on that, at least. I want the public to know that there are there is inside baseball. That we're not all just like a bunch of like kind of like puppets created in a you know reform laboratory where we all just kind of like shills. Yeah, yeah. neoliberal shills <laughs> or what I was called by one school board member in Nashville a paid whore, uh, nice. a whole whore. I was like I I don't know what to do. With it. Future show for people listening. We will do a future show on some of these experiences inside baseball stories we've had in very specific districts, and one of them. Yes. I'm just going to tease it and leave it there. Music city. Just keep listening, folks. All right, next Damn. story. So the next up is in our hopeful category. Like what makes us hopeful and what gives us hope? And I just want to say for the record, I didn't choose this one necessarily as hopeful, but I'm not against it being a hopeful sign. Uh, but Ravi, I think you'll have more to say about it. Yeah, so, I'll try to convince you. I'll try to convince you that it's hopeful, yeah. So you can convince me that this is hopeful, but the New York City schools face a crisis. And at the time that they're facing this crisis, they're losing students because charter schools are gaining students. Enrollment at charters is up, and the governor of that state has signaled a measure of support, but the privately run schools, and I hate this word privately run, because we know that that is focus grouped language that was put into the lexicon years ago to make charter schools seem non-public. But anyways, these privately run schools still face an enormous battle as they seek to expand, and part of that is a policy battle 
in the state of New York, they put a cap on uh, the, the amount of opportunity that kids can have to learn because they, they don't want too many poor kids of color getting too many opportunities to learn because they like actually having a surf system, a system that creates surfs. So they actually limit the number of types of opportunities you can have to learn. Of course, that's my commentary. That's mm-hmm. not actually the official story, and that's not part of the hopeful part. But Ravi, help convince me, why is it a good thing that charter schools in New York are gaining students? Well, let me add a couple of things. Uh, the, Go ahead. So charters have gained 10,000 uh, students during the pandemic in New York. Districts lost about a tenth of their students, so potentially like 100,000 plus. Only 15,000 of those were lost to charters. So a lot mm-hmm, of them are mm-hmm. losing them either to just people moving out of the city or going to private schools, et cetera. So charters aren't the principal driver of district under enrollment. And the part that I'm hopeful about is not districts losing students. That I'm not hopeful about. I generally don't like any fiscal crisis. For anybody, I love the city of New York. I want people to stay here. I want people to flourish in this city. But I do think the fact that charters are working in New York makes me hopeful. And mm-hmm. I am hopeful that uh, we have certain leaders, the election's over. I could just say that Kathy Hochul, the, the, the governor of New York, has talked about wanting to lift the charter school cap. That makes me hopeful, especially given by all available evidence, charter schools in New York City perform extremely well. The Stanford's credo, which is their, uh, what is it, Center for Research on Educational Outcomes, I think is what it's, it's their, the Stanford School of Education's research arm, which charter haters had long been quoting when the data wasn't necessarily flattering to charters. But uh, in the past decade now, the data has started to come out that's very, very uh, strongly suggestive that urban charter schools in particular are very successful. In 2015, they published a study that showed that and they use, a, they use a method called statistical match, which means that if I'm a student in one school, they find out everything about me that they possibly can and then compare me to a student who goes to a traditional public school and then they compare how the charter is doing versus that student, right? And what they found is that a student attending an urban charter school receives the equivalent of 40 additional days of uh, learning per year in math and 28 days of additional learning per year in reading. Not actual days, but the equivalent of being in that school means that you would get 40 additional days per year in math, 28 in reading. And those numbers are even more dramatic in New York City and particularly strong uh, for black and Hispanic students in New York City. Mm -hmm. Translation, Mm -hmm. charters in New York serve mostly black and brown students. Those schools are serving those students extremely well. Uh, And Mm -hmm. it's not just Stanford. You can look at performance on other standardized tests or the fact that there's a huge demand and massive wait lists here. So you don't even have to look at the objective data. The parents themselves see this working. And so that's why you see people like Eric Adams winning uh, as mayor of New York. And that's why you also see Kathy Hochul doing particularly well. It's because there are a lot of parents out there who see this stuff working. And my hope, so what makes me hopeful is that this will translate into a lift lifting of the cap that we have right now in New York City, preventing us from having any more of these schools. Do you really think that's why Eric Adams won? I mean, I know that's an aside, but... Yeah, I mean, that is a bit of a simplification. I don't think it's exactly why either of them won. I think it was Mm -hmm. part of the reason. These were narrow victories. So like, you know, victory has a thousand fathers or whatever they say. I think it's part of the story around why Mm -hmm. Eric Adams Mm -hmm. did particularly well is that this is part of a theory I have, which is there was this sense that Eric Adams was this out of touch, like candidate of the rich. And I'm like, well, you look at the actual turnout in this election and who voted for Eric Adams in that primary, which was the decider in the election because the general doesn't really matter in New York. He was winning East New York and South Bronx, right? 
So he was winning the communities of color. And it was actually his opponents, like Maya Wiley, who were performing really well on the Upper West Side and places like that. So the people mm-hmm. were saying that Eric Adams was this, you know, neoliberal shill, to use a word we've talked about already, um, <laughs> and the candidate of the wealthy. They were missing something happening out in the communities of color. And what's fascinating, it was communities of color, and it was places like where I grew up in Staten Island, in blue-collar neighborhoods that voted for Eric Adams. Mm-hmm. And that tells me that this was a revolt against the elite in New York. And part of that story is the fact that the elite take for granted where they send their kids to school, whether it's the zone public school that they're like, I'm for neighborhood schools, right? We all know that story. You're for your neighborhood school that you paid millions of dollars for your house in, but you don't know anything about what that East New York neighborhood school looks like. Mm-hmm. And to me, mm-hmm. part of the story was that somebody like Eric Adams is like, you know what? I talk about rat infestation, something that liberals made fun of him about. Uh, I'm going to talk about the quality of our schools. I'm going to talk about public housing. I'm going to talk about public transportation in ways that are different. And I think that resonated with people. I don't think education was the only reason, but I think it mattered. I think it's really interesting. You just mentioned the elite of New York, and we've talked on this show previously about selective enrollment schools. And uh, I'm interested often times where it's Who's who's for and against those schools staying open and closing, and then who's for against these charter schools, which become you know charter schools have been framed. They've had a bad frame job, but they were schools of hope for kids that had no other hope in their territory. And the way that you just described them in New York, with the research and the evidence behind them, makes them schools of hope. Like we have these other schools that people want to protect and defend so much that are that are not. Uh, necessarily citadels of learning for people of color, for young black and brown kids. But there are these things called charter schools. And to see who's for and against them, we fought this for years. Uh, I've been kind of a Twitter battler for charters just because I've worked with black charter school leaders who were giving opportunities to black kids in places where those kids weren't getting that those type of opportunities. So I've been committed to it. And I was a former charter school parent, right? There was a point at which with my oldest son, we needed a different option than what we had. And I was really worried that I was going to mess up the decision and put him on the wrong track. And it actually worked out really well for us. And I became an advocate after that for charters. Not every charter, but just charters in general. But when I think about it in New York specifically, I could just remember battles with folks before Bauman um, actually went off to Congress. He ran a school that the white elite of Jamal Bowman, the, the member of Congress from uh, uh, Westchester area, right? Right. So his school was horrible, and I wrote about it years ago. But I had all these white elite, liberal, progressive people of New York come after me and call me every kind of neoliberal and blah, 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 whatever. Because I was attacking this school just by pulling up the fact that they loved it so much, but the black kids in that school weren't learning anything. The numbers were mm-hmm. horrible. They were just, yeah. and these were all anti-charter people. And I was like, how can you be against mm-hmm. schools that are literally posting the numbers for the kids that you say you love so much? You're damn near wearing a Gary Coleman t-shirt all the time because you love black, little black boys so much. But this, this is like, talk about failing upward. They loved him so much. They elevated him so much. And now he sits in Congress actually having mm-hmm. a seat where he can kind of mess up education policy like for the rest of us the way that he did in New York. Meanwhile, you have all these other schools where charter leaders in New York, I don't think they just don't get the same type of respect. And I you know, I've never been able to like really figure out what's going through your mind as a white progressive when you're just mm-hmm. so adamantly you're almost maga like. They're almost like maga like against For sure. These kind of schools, like they're the left MAGA, they're that version on the left, and it's terrible. I know we've teased this many times, but I have, I have worked in progressive politics against the MAGA people, and I've worked in charter schools against liberals, and there are no 
more disingenuous, uh, aggressive, hateful, sociopathic people than <laughs> the white progressives I fought in Nashville, Tennessee on the issues of school choice who lived in fancy parts of the city uh, in Nashville uh, and hoarded their privilege. Like, just look up Lachlan Elementary, for example, in East mm -hmm. Nashville. We'll mm -hmm. talk about this at some point. But, you know, a magnet school that doesn't bus kids, even though there's uh, there was a public housing facility just within just far away enough that a bus would be required to get the kids to that school. And they wouldn't bus those kids over to Lachlan to get us. They had this neighborhood boundary around just the fancy, expensive parts of East Nashville. And those were some of the fiercest anti-charter people and could not look in the mirror and see the hypocrisy around the fact that they were exercising school choice. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And these are people who would have thrown me in prison if they could. And they dox you. They dox people. They try and ruin your career. They try and get you fired from jobs. Um, when we talk about, when you use words like sociopathic and those type of words, I don't think people listening to this who don't understand the backroom politics, when you are a charter leader or a person who even supports or says nice things about charters in the public, the doxing commences. The ability for people to try and get, I got fired from three different jobs because people wrote to the leaders of the companies that I worked for, literally saying that that they would boycott the companies that I worked for. Oh my God. Uh, and it was because of votes that I made that were pro-charter as a school board member, who at the time I was a parent also, by the way. And I don't think the public knows about that, how dirty the the politics of that get and just how yeah. MAGA like and New York has its own brand of those oh, yeah. like, and, and the the hypocrisy in New York to to me and I'm not there you you live there you know better than I do but whenever I would say anything positive about Success Academy by the way right like which I for years have said if Success Academy Success Academy has twenty five thousand students if it was its own school district it's about five times the size of the average American school district that would make it the most successful of color school district in the United States if you look at their their numbers and their outcomes, it's literally the most successful of color school district in the United States, right? You would think that would make people want to visit and want to learn what they're doing and whatnot. I don't want to get into that. We could do a whole show specifically on the problematic kind of politics around why people hate that particular school. But every time that I would put something on Twitter about them or write something positive about them, one of the first people that would come after me is Gary Rubenstein, yeah, who is at- Perfect who's example. At, who's at- a selective enrollment school, one of the ones I've criticized for having seven black kids out of a thousand kids admitted, he would be the Wait, first one to Stuyvesant? criticize this. I didn't know that. Yes, yes. He's, and he's the, the math former teacher T there. Teach for America person, right? Former TFA, math teacher, anti reform, anti charter school, anti EVA. Uh, Eva Moskowitz, yeah. Anti-Success Academy. So anything I would ever put up and post about them, he would write whole blog posts to to basically kind of debunk, debunk the miracle yeah. schools was his thing. But meanwhile, he's teaching at the selective enrollment school that only admits like seven black kids out of a thousand kids admitted. And he's got something to say about these schools where you just said, here's the evidence. Uh, they do better there. Uh, black and brown kids do better there. At, what was it? 40 days that you said that mm -hmm. they gain, you know? Yeah, more in New York City though. Yeah, more yeah. in, in yeah. urban areas, period, which is where yeah. the majority of them are. Right. Like yep. that's why they exist in a lot of ways. They're not made necessarily, you know, sorry, charter folks who think that these are yeah. made for all places and all times. Listen, they're rural Republicans that don't want charter schools anywhere near yep. them. But the urban areas where the majority of people of color live is a place where there needs to be schools of hope. 
schools that are doing new things and different things. Uh, I'm glad to see you in New York. You guys might get more of them. Do you think the caps lifted or going to be lifted? I don't know. I want to play a part in getting it lifted. And mm -hmm. I'm having some back conversations about some of this stuff. I have one, one idea, which is to link some of the, this just, I think assumes a bit of good faith that might not be here, but I've elected some of these anti-charter people in New York. So I have a little bit of a, an opportunity to talk to some of the people I got elected mm -hmm. because like education is not my only issue. So like I, you know, in my time at arena, the organization that you described, I have elected people who I agree with on a lot of things, but weren't with me on charters and to the, their credit, like we were able to work things out. And I think some of the dynamics I experienced in Nashville, I was able to overcome here uh, in New York. So hopefully that can lead to some role I can play in helping to get this law fixed. One of my theories is that there's this huge influx of migrants into New York City. And the city is just unable to deal with it, the traditional public school system. And I'm not sure to what extent at all the charters are playing a part in solving this crisis. So what I think is we should, we should as charters, charter proponents, go to the state and be like, look, give us almost emergency powers to open boarding schools, convert things mm -hmm. quickly, open up uh, schools with outside of the boundaries of the district, like in Westchester and Long Island, et cetera, to serve migrants arriving in New York City uh, to, to solve this problem that the traditional public school district is being distressed over. We can work together on this. We don't have to be at odds on this and and put that on the table as part of lifting the cap is to say like we have to serve a certain percentage of students that are the arriving migrants that the district can't deal with. And then homeless students generally, there's generational poverty homeless students in New York that the district also hasn't been able to serve well. Let's serve those students too. Let's get that all right. So that's part of my my hope and expectation is that maybe we can combine that with a lifting of the cap for all students and any students that we could serve. I don't know how somebody like Eva would feel about that. I know that she's, I love Eva, but she's very particular about the kind of schools she wants to run and the admissions processes that she has. And I'm, I'm not sure to what extent she would want to take on that challenge, but I know there are other leaders in and around New York City, like Ryan Hill, who runs uh, KIPP team in Newark, who's a big proponent of this idea. So like there are people in and around New York City who are really excited about this kind of stuff. And I'm hoping mm -hmm. we can do something about it. Well, I just want to say for the record, if I'm ever in trouble and I need somebody to come help me, send me Eva Moskowitz. Yes. Uh, rather than some of the rest of you, not you, Ravi, but some of the rest of you kind of like both siders, people who like to see all things or whatnot. I need somebody with the clarity of an Eva Moskowitz to solve my problems because <laughs> Eva does not give a damn. Uh, the result is the result. The thing that she wants to happen is the thing that she wants to happen. And I think in New York, this this is very much as a spectator. This is probably what you become in New York after you've fought enough battles and mm -hmm. you know, people in New York are a little bawdy, I think in a little a lot of ways. We need more of that in other parts of the country. So, so did you, to put my contrarian hat on here as somebody who also ran schools, she had the same kind of when you talked about like when you're talking about Rob, the kind of social media accounts that were attacking mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Democracy Prep, which I, I think is the school you're talking about there. She had the same stuff there. Now, oh, I know. I don't I don't think that's a reflection of the only story about Success Academy, because I, to my knowledge, there has never been such an account about Republic schools, but it wouldn't shock me if there were some students who felt aggrieved by how strict we were. Now, we don't have that. It mm -hmm. hasn't existed. I don't think it's that means we're racist, but I also, there are certain practices that we implemented 10 years ago 
that I probably wouldn't do now. Well, I'll just be clear about it too. You know, Eva, one of Eva's chief critics is the person we started the show talking about. So we're talking kind of inside baseball in a very private way, yes. but we're talking about democracy yeah. prep kind of, in this case, democracy prep had students that created social media accounts and Success Academy run by Eva Moskowitz also had a similar type of campaign that was run against them, but it wasn't organic and it wasn't internal. The campaign that was run against Success Academy was actually a professional campaign run by unions and haters of the school. Uh, the campaign mm-hmm. at Democracy Prep was literally from students who had lots of stories to share. Uh, and the, yeah. the situation that those two schools were very different. In fact, one of Eva's biggest critics was Seth, who ran Democracy Prep. Yeah. For those who want some inside baseball made outside who, baseball. To bring it full circle, who is the person we referenced who's in prison? Who's <laughs> so in jail right like, now. For, so. I don't think that's funny. I, I'm like... I actually think it's a tragic story. Yeah, yeah and listen, I, I love sharing it because I think that there is so much that the public doesn't know. There used to be a book a long time ago, Who Will Tell the People? And I remember just the title of the book was jarring to me because I committed at some point to just telling the people. Say the things that need to be say, said, and these type of things that we just talked about, there's such deeper stories to that, but the public doesn't get all of what's going on behind the scenes, and they get very simple stories I, I'm just interested in them being smarter about the institutions that serve yep. them. Wrapping this up around charter schools, I will say this. I do think for the future, we need to think about charter schools as an ordinary part of the public school system, not some extraordinary kind of com- competitive force that's meant to destroy or kill traditional schools. That can't be their their purpose or their labeling or the thing the thing that they're founded on. They have to be kind of like an ordinary part, like magnet schools and any other form of option that you get through public school choice. They're not vouchers. They're not private. They're not privatized. They do serve a need for niche populations that need the exactly what they're offering. So this has been another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show, which is on the Lost Debate Network. And I'm so proud and happy of that to be part of a network that really is heterodoxing. You know, heterodox is going heterodox. And I love the fact that <laughs> Lost Debate Network is actually doing that for real and not doing it for phony. We, uh, we don't agree on everything. We have lots of disagreements. As a matter of fact, I watch some of the other stuff and, you know, hosts are saying things where I'm just like, I'm old manning it all over the place. Like, get off my lawn, damn it. And I just want to debate some of the other lost debate folks. I'll set it up. Go ahead. I said, well, you're going to set it up. Yeah. We're going to have yeah, like yeah. an annual kind of debate off, like a whole debate yeah. off. That would be beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're yeah. listening to the show and you like it, please share it with your friends, subscribe to the show, leave a, a good review because we would love your reviews on this show that help us get more people to uh, pay attention to what we what we've got going on in the future we're going to have some great guests so uh look out for that we're going to have some shows where we bring other folks in and we can get more in depth on some of the stories that we really care about maybe maybe eva maybe rob pandicio maybe some i would love to get any of these folks on all of them have an open invitation even people that i've crossed swords with they all know the same thing i don't care about crossing swords that's what intellectuals do Come on the show. Let's talk about yeah, it. I'll make sure he behaves. If you're listening, I'll I'll keep him in line. Yeah, if you're, if you're <laughs> afraid, Chris is going to come after you. There is no keeping me in line. I don't. I, I'm tribeless. I have no political <laughs> party. I don't. I don't agree with anybody a hundred percent. So there is no keeping me in line because I will always be a contrarian. But I love this. Uh, I love this show, and I love this opportunity to speak to the broader public about the thing that matters to me most, which is public education and, and the education of our nation's youth. So let's sit together on it. Let's keep the conversation going. We will catch you on the next episode. Thank you for listening, and thank you for. Sharing sharing the show with others.